0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we're talking to a true trailblazer for women in the world of life sciences venture capital. Sarah Naeem is a partner at New Enterprise Associates, or NEA, where she focuses on investments in biopharmaceutical companies. Her investment career is brimming with high-profile biotech companies, including Loxo Oncology, Tesaro, and Nightstar, which have all been acquired in the past few years. She was included on Fierce Biotech's 2019 list of the fiercest women in life sciences and was selected three times as one of Growth Cap's top 40 under 40 growth investors. Prior to NEA, she was an associate at Merrill Lynch's Global Healthcare Group and completed her MD MBA at Yale. Thank you again sarah for for joining us today. I'm really excited. I mean, I'm biased because I love the life sciences, so I'm excited to hear um, to hear your your input and your advice and experience in the space. So do you find that your medical background has helped in these conversation with these companies, these early stage companies?
1: Yes, I think it's it's a little bit like knowing the language, so it's not so much about knowing all of medicine, and and in fact, we'll always speak to experts, uh, you know, both in the academic setting and the community setting, people actually treat patients in a particular area where we're investigating a drug program. So we we'll do a lot of diligence, but it's more about being able to, uh, you know, read clinical trial results, read scientific literature, and be able to understand and hone in on it, having some experience in a clinical setting is also helpful. It gives other people the confidence to say, yes, this person should be able to you know, read these papers, talk to these entrepreneurs. And so it's kind of a check uh, for them, which is, I think, why you know, sometimes the, the specs for venture investors in this area, they, they often do say well, we're seeking something an advanced degree, which, um, like I said, I don't think you need it. Many people are, are quite successful about it, but it's it's just a way to you know, sort of to check that box quickly for the desire
0: So what would you say to someone like me who's a medical student or a PhD student or a young professional who has these aspirations but they're not quite sure what that biopharma company would look like or or really where to start
1: so I think there are, Many, many types of people could fit under that heading that that you mentioned, but just to start with, you know, the the biggest differentiator, I think, is people who already have a project or an asset and then people who are just thinking ahead, like you said, a few steps and saying, how do I get to that point where I have something that I actually say, yes, I want to form a company around this. So people who already have a program or an asset, something you're working on in the lab that they think is exciting. I think, um, you know, first that, for, for them, the first step is to think about where is that asset from. So if you're in the academic setting, uh, you need to talk to your tech transfer office. Um, you know, look into if there are mentorship or entrepreneur programs within the university, and speak to other people in your ecosystem who have successfully launched companies and figure out how do they do it, how do you navigate the overall university system, and that will. There are many questions that you'll need to ask yourself along the way as to whether or not this could be a successful biopharma company, whether it's a platform or a set of compounds with a particular target that, that you think could be developed for a particular disease. But really the first step is to try trying to find the people within your institution that will help guide you along that path. You can take a look at what you've done and say, oh, you know, this this may may not really be the right application, but let's think about this other element of, of the technology coming out of your lab or this other way to apply it. And of course, those people will also be the ones that will help file the IP and you know and figure out how to you know, get a license into a company. Um, if you if you're not actually in the academic setting, but you've already found something existing in say big pharma that wants to outlicense a project, then there are things like accelerator programs. Those are those can be helpful um, looking trying to find advisors in the space. There are a lot of people who have been successful in in Running these businesses, who've exited, they're still relatively young. Um, they don't want to be full-time CEOs or you know, C-level execs anymore, and you know, which can be sort of an all-encompassing job. But they still want to be part of the ecosystem. So there are a lot of people out there who will give their time for free or will consult, and you know, can give you a, a lot in a, a short amount of time in a you know, consulting capacity. Um, so trying to find those advisors is is important. And generally, if you're a young person who's been on the science or the medical side, you don't have a drug development background, um, that you will eventually sooner or later need to pull in experienced entrepreneurs that can help you figure out how to take the company to the next level. You could go ahead and set it up as, um, you know, somebody who, who doesn't have a lot of experience, but sooner or later you'll need to get either full time people in the company or, you know, advisors, consultants. People who you know these accelerator settings who can help you think about setting up the company, securing IP, securing funding, thinking about the contracts you need to put together with contract resource organizations. So eventually, you will need to have people on the business side as well. Um, I think you know two two key things is to remember when you get started. I think the first is that you have to figure out if what you're trying to push forward is really worth your time as well as the money that's coming from grants, and then investors, friends and family often kick in and help these companies get off off their feet. So you have to really think through what is the killer experiment, as we call it, that tells you, yes, this is worth going forward. I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, But the second thing is that the vast majority of preclinical programs do fail. So you, you know, that's, you want actually to be a fast fail. You want to fail sooner before you put a lot of your time and effort into it rather than later. You can learn a lot from these, you know, early efforts from things that fail. All companies will have things that fail. You know, successful entrepreneurs often are at companies that the technology doesn't work out, then they move on to somewhere else. And if, you know, they, they learn along the way and, and can still be very successful. So it's important not to get discouraged, but also, you know, to be really clear eyed right about that. And also, just if you have something that's more of a, a platform that can generate lots of different assets or targets, that's probably, that's going to give you more shots on goal and, you know, give you more opportunities to potentially come up with something that will eventually make it to the clinic and, and hopefully be effective in patients. Um, and, you know, I'd say if you don't, you know, people who don't have anything in mind yet, but they're just looking ahead, first of all, you can try to get involved in the ecosystem you're in. So, Cambridge, San Francisco, San Diego, RTP, all of these areas have really rich um, entrepreneurial ecosystems, lots of innovation going on. So becoming part of the community, getting involved, meeting people, offering up your time to companies, trying to get involved in companies, um, trying to join labs where, you know, there have been lots of innovations that have spun out of it. it. You know, even even as a medical student, you can still do some work in labs, try to get as close as you can to those ecosystems. And also, as you move along, you can also get to know people at these venture creation shops, places like Atlas Arch, Third Rock Flagship. They'll actually, you know, come in and take technology and form companies around it and put in their own people. And so you, you know, if that, if you end up being able to get them interested in one of your programs or technologies, you may not have to go through all those steps of so finding, um, you know, the business side, the business people to to help you along. Um, but really, it's, you know, it's, it's a very iterative process every step of the way. You're getting feedback, you're learning, you're looking at what's next, what's exciting, where are these opportunities, you, you'll hear about different things you can get involved with, and then using your judgment of what's exciting to you and, and where do you think there's something that, uh, you know, potentially could work.
0: A lot of physicians and physician scientists that are doing research, they many of them kind of stop at the publication, right? They're just very devoted to their lab work. How can we get some of these physicians to kind of think beyond just publications and and think about translation to to companies and, and the like?
1: Well, I think a lot of it depends on the academic institution and what is the culture of it. So some institutions have really great Science and yet they they really don't have they don't recognize people for translational work it's discouraged it's seen as dirty or you know, like you said and you know linking arms with bad biopharma bad biotech um, and it, they may not be as likely to get promotion if they're their work on translational work or you know they they're just maybe this culture of this one you know few people do that type of thing but everybody else really needs to do. Basic work and stop there. We've seen more and more institutions, and I won't name names, but I'll say, you know, more and more of the really ivory tower institutions have started to focus more on translational work and try to build a little more of a culture where there are these things like mentorship set up. The tech tech transfer offices are um, incentivized to try to get different programs through to commercialization. It's it's crazy that you know even even at the NIH. uh, working working through something called BioHealth Innovation, uh, which is this public-private partnership. They have all these NIH EIRs, and when they first started the program, the NIH uh, folks who were responsible for getting these technologies out licensed, they had no economic incentive to get them out licensed. So people respond to incentives, and they respond to tracking things and and you know b- making. Making it, you know, clear and, and publicizing when, when these drugs actually come to market or get licensed to, to institutions. So I think some of it is cultural. Um, some of it is just putting in these, uh, these programs in place so people understand how to take the next step and doing different grant programs that, um, that are more translation based. Um, and then, you know, figuring out there are a lot of, different innovations, some of them driven by investors in collaboration with academic institutions to, you know, link arms with these investigators. And when the technology gets to a certain point, these different um, programs will take that technology and actually, you know, the venture firms will have capital that they'll use to bring it to the next level. And so investigators can come and kind of pitch their project and a certain number will end up getting funded. And a lot of that work will be done by outside CROs, both because the investigators are busy, you know, continuing to do their more, you know, basic earlier stage work, but also because you need these external CROs to validate the um, the results from the academic lab. And oftentimes they don't validate, whether that's just because something is run in the in the lab by a you know a tech who's really good at doing this experiment and, and you can't get it to work in other people's hands, or for whatever reason. Um, so that's always an important of the process, but I, I am encouraged by just seeing that in a lot of the different academic institutions, there has been you know a, a push for translational work.
0: That is very encouraging, and I'm and I'm glad to see that more of these partnerships are sprouting. So hopefully, that's a signal for greater change to come. So let's say now that I have my company and it's at the point where I'm seeking investment from. A uh, larger firm like yours, NEA. Uh, what are some common mistakes I should avoid when I'm developing my clinical and business development plans and, and pitching these to you?
1: Yeah, so I would say there are a number of different things that that are required to make an interesting biopharma company, and I see companies kind of slipping up on most uh, of these these different steps. So just to, to name a few, you know, first is the drug addressing an important and interesting unmet need that sometimes entrepreneurs can get this a little bit wrong because they go after an indication that they can find a model that shows that their molecule works in it and it it produces some promising results. But they don't go back and check with the investors to see if this is an interesting area. So something like sepsis, for instance, is an area where it's called, you know, it's considered a graveyard, quote unquote, because so many companies have tried to develop drugs in that area and for various reasons related to you know the biology as well as how patients are you know come through the through the hospital, the receptacle, et cetera. It's really hard to develop drugs in that area. So we're gonna get struggle if that's where you're focused in terms of getting a, a venture capital firm excited about that particular area. There could be other areas where you could apply your technology, but unfortunately we see people often. Kind of wasting their, you know, precious grant grant funding on models that are, you know, pushing forward and it, towards an indication that it's going to be difficult to get funded. Uh, that's um, so that's an important thing. And then there's also I'd say another type of unmet need that is a big unmet need, but challenging for investors is something that's a really big indication, like a cardiovascular indication, like um, you know, heart attacks, strokes, um, you know, et cetera. Those those or diabetes. Um, these types of large kind indications are, there is still a lot of unmet need, especially because there are so many patients who, uh, you know, could benefit from new drugs, but there's also, you know, relatively good standard of care and it's been evolved to a certain point. So not only do you need uh, really large safety databases and often mortality outcomes and data to satisfy the FDA because these would be used in so many patients and because the standard of care is strong enough that you just need that many more patients to demonstrate some superiority of it so you need these really long large costly trials and those are really hard to run in a venture backed setting now of course the IPO window has been open and you know for since 2013 and and you know we there are there's a lot of capital that's available to companies but still less <laughs> less excitement of uh, from the public market for these types of huge really you know, costly, really risky drug development partners. If it hits, it's a big, huge, huge win, but if it, it, you know, if there's a really high bar. Um, so, again, some of those models are easy to get access to and can be a way to say, oh, wow, this works in, you know, this particular disease state. You really have to make sure that you're, you know, thinking about a disease state that will actually be meaningful. Maybe you can run one of those models as a first step, but really before you spend all of your capital, you know, to, you um, you know all of all of the grant money that you have really think through those different steps and and where when am I going to get to a model or an indication that I think I could actually get some funding for? The second step is, you know, is the mechanism of action or the target is it is it validated for that particular need and is it likely to be something that can be developed into a drug? So here's where I was talking about the particular experiment. Um, it's easy to get an animal model and to run it and to show something, it would make some difference in that animal model. I think um, what sometimes we see is that companies, they don't want to actually know how well their drug works against other you know, things Things are already available commercially or, or might be in clinical trials, or sometimes they're not approved for the indication, but they're in guidelines and they're frequently used. And so there's still uh, something that you would need to compete against. Um, you you can start by saying, well, would I use this drug on top of standard of care? Would it be for patients who fail standard of care? Would it be patients who can't tolerate standard of care? Or is it really so good that it would be used more often than standard of care because it's disease modifying and maybe these other things are already available to the patients are really just symptomatic. So you also have to remember to run your models that way. But we see a lot of companies just leaving out positive controls that would be easy to get those compounds, reasonable to put them through the models. And it's a little bit of, you know, not kind of wanting to know the, the answer. And that's, again, why I'm saying you really need to be clear-minded clear and look for things that should be made into drugs, not just can be made into drugs, because there will be a lot of people who pass on those programs by saying, you know, I just don't know if this is going to, how this would look relative to other drugs in the space that have been developed or, you know, are already out there. So it's important to, you know, start out with that in mind, saying, I really want to do that of experiment. And then, of course, IP is important. Is it protectable? There are some places where you don't need composition matter, like um, the orphan drug space. You can get seven years in the U.S., ten years in, in Europe. So the, you can sometimes develop programs in those indications if you're going to get orphan designation. But generally, you need composition matter IP or some really, other type of IP that's very strong. And so again, sometimes people will find a molecule and they'll forget to kind of say how much IP life is left on this. You know, repurposing can make sense, but again, you have to have a strategy for how are you going to to protect this? Is there some formulation or some type of method of use IP that's out there? And, you know, sadly if not, then it's just not going to be, you know, something that you can get funded for because it won't be it won't be reimbursement. Uh, you know, there, there'll be competition on the back end if it ends up being a successful drug and they will just never get reimbursed, um, compensated for for the, you know, hundred million or more, whatever, hundreds uh, millions of millions of dollars that go into the drug development. And then I'd say, you know, one other place is clinical development plan. Is it reasonable? I think that's something that um, oftentimes people don't think through all the steps. I think there's some, uh, certainly, if you're a really early stage company and you have one or two indications that you want to go into, no one is going to expect you to have mapped out the entire plan with like really, you know, really careful budgets that have validation from the 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 CROs. But you will need to at least think through: is there a reasonable phase three endpoint? And again, getting back to things like in the um, cardiovascular indications or or just any large chronic indication. That can be a challenge or something like neurodegeneration, where it's in some of these indications you really have, we we think you ought to treat really early. And that means you'll be really long trials, hard to enroll, um, trying to find the right patient population to enroll. So really making sure that you think through all the way to the end and say, yes, I think we can at least see, see, uh, you know, an avenue to having a reasonable clinical trial plan. And of course, team is also something that, um, investors look at if you're uh, somewhat early in your career and you have a really nascent company, there's only so much you can do to attract uh, people on board who are you're perhaps filling in some of that experience. And, and oftentimes you want to stay the CEO, you want to be the person controlling the fate of the company, but you then need to fill that in with advisors, with a really strong scientific advisory board. There for Those people are really Actually, are involved in your program, not just you had one call with them and they, you know, you put them on the slide. We see that a lot where you call those people up and they don't actually know that much about uh, the company. So really, the even though these are companies are science based, there's an incredible amount of success that's dependent on this dialogue back and forth, getting feedback, knowing what can get funded in this space, and getting the right advisors and mentors around you to help you succeed.
2: So pivoting here um, a little bit, um, I would like to spend some time talking about gender equity in life sciences. So the publication that um, we look forward to a lot um, is uh, Fierce Biotech, and also Endpoints and how they feature the leading women in biopharma. It's I think it's very inspiring, and I and you've actually been featured in the last year um, Fierce's woman in in biotech um, from Fierce Biotech, right?
1: Is a very nice honor.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was awesome to see. Um, but I think on the flip side, um, the fact that we need to have this publication, um, I think, suggests that you, you, we have a way to go um, to attain gender equity in this space, as for other industries as well. Um, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on if you can suggest any concrete steps that both men and women um, in this space can take to move closer to the gender equity that. Um, that we kind of long for here
1: yeah no it's um diversity is is definitely a, a passion mine we' seeing both venture and you know the biopharma industry broadly we do have a long way to go um, but I am encouraged by the the different strides we've made in the past you know five years and then of course um, even uh, since George floyd's uh, murder I think there's been you know real uh, Focus on diversity within the industry that, that we didn't have before. That so, I I, I am I am optimistic that we will make progress. Um, I do think part of this is education because there's all this there's all this in, in, incredible and you know downright depressing actually data about the way people uh, their their implicit biases at work against women and underrepresented minorities in the workplace. And educating people about that and, and helping them by reading these studies, understanding what the research shows, um, undergoing trainings around implicit bias, uh, microaggressions, helping them, um, to, you know, understand where, uh, where these can show up in the workplace is uh, helpful. And then I think that's, that's kind of a first step. But then a second step is really to try to step back and, um, remove some of those yeah, you know, the, the effect of those biases were possible. So things like if you're in at, in it, at NEA, if we're um, hiring someone at kind of the early to mid level, they'll usually, um, under the write up a case study. And we take those case studies, we anonymize them through, um, somebody who's not involved in, in reviewing them. We'll take off the names and things like that. And then we'll, those will be read by the people who are evaluating them because we know that the way people read, uh, Papers and data and things. It depends on whether they think it's from a woman or a man. If it's somebody they believe is a minority, they will grade it more harshly. They will find more errors and even at the resume stage. Um, some sometimes it's possible to uh, remove the the name, the gender, you know, and other things within the resume. We do know that if, when people from minorities whiten their resumes by taking off things like. You know, black business leaders or changing their name from a more, from an Asian sounding name to like a, an American sounding name, for instance, even if the last name is the same, but changing the, the first name, they'll get more um, interviews. They'll get more callbacks. It's really, you know, all really pretty really disturbing research, but I think it's important um, for us to sit down and confront those things and say, you know, A, let's educate people, but let's also, to the extent possible, take out um, that that element of uh, of a process. So there's only you know so much you can do. I think I think also being really um, thoughtful about stating ahead of time what are the criteria that we have for promotion. What are the criteria we have for um, hiring somebody? So there's an interesting study done where these teams were given two different resumes and one they thought was the resume of a woman and one was the resume of a man and in one iteration, the woman had more experience and the man had more academic credentials. And so when they said, who would you hire for this? They chose the man because they said, well, we think academic credentials are more important for this. And then they gave it to another group of people and they switched them and the woman had more academic credentials and and the man had more experience. And they still chose the man, uh, you know, overwhelmingly because they said, well, I think experience is more important here. But when they ran the experiment and they said, ahead of time, you know, they defined clearly Academics is more important, or experience is more important, then they chose whichever candidate that had, you know, those criteria that they were supposed to be hiring based off of. Um, so I think setting those criteria and being really thoughtful when in, in the uh, promotion process is happening, a review process, and saying, so this is how we view this particular person, and particularly if it's a woman or a minority, or also a white man. It, are you judging them fairly? Was there someone else who came through? recently who had very similar feedback. Did you react to that person similarly and, and, and give them the same type of rating? Um, I think all those things are important. And, you know, giving feedback is really important um, to, you know, a lot of times there's this phenomenon where men are considered coachable and there's, you know, they may have made the student's mistake, but they have potential. And so someone coaches them and they get past um, some of their, you know, hangups and they're then they're able to be successful. But a lot of times... For women and minorities, they're not given great feedback, and they, so they don't end up being able to solve those issues, um, and there are various reasons that that, that happens, um, but I think that's also really important is having the more mentorship, the more feedback, the more clear the review process is, is the more that people are judged on very clear um, outcomes, the less it's all of this stuff that's in the you know, subconscious of people's minds um, that ends up making, you know, coming out and making these, these processes less fair. And I also think just trying to, if possible, recruit if a recruiter who knows that you have a diversity focus is also important because certainly in venture, a lot of the jobs are word of mouth, and if you're just going by word of mouth, you're going to get people in your network or whoever's doing the hire, of course. So the more you can, you know, publicize it more broadly, the more people that could be great candidates can, but that you know, maybe outside the network can can, uh, can be brought in. Um, and also hiring people, you know, at, at the earlier stages in their career, instead of oftentimes, you know, hires sort of default to, oh, well, this person's a little more experienced, or they've already done X, Y, Z. And so, if you're in an in a uh, profession where there are not as many women or minorities at the senior levels, and you you are pivoting towards more of a senior hire, you're of course going to be drawing from a less diverse group.
2: Yeah, wow. I think um, all the you know suggestions that you um, just mentioned are very actionable, and I really like that. Such as you know anonymizing the case studies and resumes is definitely something that a company that I'm at um, explored as well. But I think although lots of companies know that that is something they should try, uh, lots of you know hurdles get in the way, such as, you know, if they get large volumes of applications that one person has to go into the PDFs and actually, you know, blank out all the names, um, and that takes time. But I think it's very necessary, as you mentioned, um, you know, we need to take that time and effort um, in order to remove these biases.
0: I want to just briefly touch on a topic we had brought up early in the conversation about the public perception of pharma and biotech and how COVID, I think, has, has in a sense really changed that. So first, I have a two-part question. So first, what are your thoughts on this? And second, do you think that this has read through to policy and government, for example, when it comes to drug pricing conversations?
1: Yeah, so I think it's been great to see people recognizing the importance of. Scientific and medical innovation through COVID, it's been, you know, gratifying to see that it, the the pharma industry at one point was more vilified than the tobacco industry, and that's really sad for an industry that's supposed to be producing drugs that help people and um, make them healthier and hopefully prevent them from needing to do as much inpatient care and, and preserve life and extend life. So. The, the perception has changed. I think it's import, going to be important for the drug industry to capitalize on that and to show that they're good actors, that they're pricing therapies at reasonable levels, that they're, uh, you know, working, uh, as much as possible, you know, hand in hand with government agencies in this vaccine process, as well as all the COVID therapeutics. And, and I do think that overall, um, the industry has done a, a good job of that and at the view of the industry by the public is Beginning to change, and specifically the the view on do we need to keep innovating? That is, we wouldn't have um, these you know two approved vaccines with uas if we hadn't there hadn't been massive amounts of uh, investment in mRNA over the past decade. I mean, the Moderna we required so much uh, capital, and now it's obviously paying off. And, and mRNA is a really powerful uh, modality that can be used across a lot of diseases, but I think that's really where the industry has to work closely with the administration, with lawmakers, to help them understand what can dampen innovation, what can uh, help innovation continue. Where can we uh, remove some of these, you know, the bad actors, or take take that out of the system so that people aren't Right Raising drug prices unfairly on things that are life-saving treatments that you know like a, a retrofin type example, but where we're also preserving the incentives for innovation. Um, I work on the I'm on the board of a nonprofit called No Patient Left Behind, which is uh, started by Ari Kappa and Peter Kolczyinsky. And one of the things that we've thought about is trying to uh, come up with contractual genericization. So a lot of the biologics that have been really high priced for a long period of time, you know, they're, they've been able to continue to get, pat, get patents on those and they makes sense in some, in some cases that those patents were extended. But, um, but generally, when you think about things like gene therapy and some of the cell therapies and some of the new innovations, it will be hard to genericize those. And um, it's a way for the industry to say, look, we know that something getting some long life, you know, one-off biologic getting a really long uh, patent life and having this extremely long... Um, franchise it it doesn't necessarily encourage innovation it doesn't it's not something we model on the front end and it's on the back end that those farmers are less likely to you know put capital in and try to come up with their next really important drug if they're you know milking a long franchise. So that's just one idea that's come up because I do think one way or the other the the drug industry will be pressured to say you know how can you work with the government and with payers? Um, I do think it's important to remember that drug costs are only about 10% of all the healthcare costs in the country. And certainly a big part of it is uh, is insurance uh, design. So, co and high co and high deductibles on life saving cancer medications that, you know, you can cut into all of the profits of 10 or 11% profit margin in pharma overall. If you cut that to zero, you still wouldn't, uh, many people still wouldn't be able to afford their drugs if they have, um, These copays, but it is affordable by society as a whole as long as we, uh, you know, make sure that 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 pressure isn't on um, on the consumer on the patient at at the beginning. And as long as we get, you know, the value for these drugs when they join the generic stockpile, as as uh, as Peter likes to call it, which I think makes a lot of sense. And ninety percent of all the scripts written in the U.S. are, are for generic drugs, so we get a lot of value for these drugs once they're Period of branded pricing is over, and um, I think it's really incumbent upon us as an industry to continue to help people be aware of the innovation. There's not always great messaging. We're really, you know, a lot of the people in the industry are pretty wonky, pretty academic, sciencey, and they don't always necessarily even communicate that well to the investment community, for instance. Um, you know, Just, just part of the, the DNA, I guess, of the industry is to, um, you know, to focus a little more on the science than on the messaging of what the science has done for society. So I think it's it's uh, it's going to be important to have those those dialogues and to make also to make lawmakers aware of this whole real, really important group of companies that's between the NIH, which is mostly basic research, a little bit of translational, but not very much, and then you know big pharma, which do you know have these these big revenues, but in the middle there are a lot of this innovation, these really new platforms are being pushed forward by small venture backed companies that are you know pre commercial and will require lots of capital to get to the point where you know, we have companies like Moderna that are launching extraordinary innovations that you know, can potentially save you know, save uh, our economy and our, our, you know, the earth, that, which is dramatic, but it is kind of true, <laughs> given the moment that we're in.
2: We would love to hear about your kind of personal mission. Um, that you're uh, you have set out for yourself. I think it will be really inspiring for our listeners to hear, you know, what your end goal is.
1: So, yeah, I know it's uh, that's a great question. I think when people ask me what is the best part of this job, the best part for me is when a company I've been affiliated with, you know, worked to help fund, was on the board of, um, they get a drug approved that it's going to be a meaningful drug for patients. So that moment is. Far more exciting than when we say, "Oh, great, our company got uh, acquired or they had an IPO and you know we have a successful exit. That's important, and that's what we are, our our goal is to make sure that we make money for our limited partners so the endowments and the pension funds and so forth that invest in in venture capital firms. but in this space, it is really you know mission driven, like you said around what what are we doing for patients? so much more. Drawn to the drug programs where I can see a really high amenity things in the rare disease space, oncology, where patients uh, are struggling, are dying, are going blind, um, are dealing with these, you know, these often debilitating diseases where there's really nothing for them. So that's um, what I would say is, you know, is a mission. And I would say, you know, correlated to that is certainly um, trying to do what I can on Twitter and, you know, things like podcasts and stuff to to help um, this great body of really smart and motivated drug developers to think through how do they develop their programs and market them to investors like myself and others and, you know, hopefully be be more successful, be more efficient um, and, and you know, skip some of these steps where uh, we see people kind of stumbling and they've already spent a lot of time and energy and money um, of their own or Great money and and to try to make make sure they can be as successful as possible so I think each of us has to think about what is our role in the ecosystem what kind of unique knowledge do we have I think this um, organization you guys have is wonderful um, for encouraging people to get involved in, in starting biopharma companies and health companies and and uh, so you're doing your part in the ecosystem I'm trying to do mine I think everybody you know you know you have that that main goal which is try to help fund and get great drugs approved, and then this, you know, other part of it, which is, and how can I uniquely try to help uh, make that process as as efficient and productive as possible, in addition to just, you know, writing checks, sitting on boards. Uh, So I guess that's what I'd say is my mission.
0: Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.